Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number 22 in our discussion of Alice's Adventures and the final discussion of Alice's Adventures. We're going to finish the book tonight. That is what is going to happen. So let us charge on ahead. So let me, well, before we charge on ahead, let me just remind you of what's coming up. So um, I'm headed to Australia next week, so I will be down for Osmoot, which if you sign up, you can get recordings and still attend remotely and stuff. It's going to be a lot of fun. Join us in Osmoot, in Osmoot down in Brisbane, Australia. But um, so we won't have, so Mythgard Academy is going to be off for two weeks. Next week, next Wednesday, and the Wednesday after that. Wednesday, February 8th, is when I am planning to begin our next book, which is The War of the Jewels, Volume 11 of the History of Middle-Earth. So that's been a little delayed. We ought to have gotten to The War of the Jewels last year in uh, September, but uh, we were delayed, or was it the year before? (laughs) I can't remember. I think it was the year before, actually. Um... Uh, but anyhow, we were supposed to do that, but I did The Nature of Middle-Earth instead when it came out. So that was awesome. Um, and um, uh, so I don't, no, no regrets, but it does mean that Morgoth's Ring was now quite some time ago uh, uh, with, you know, when we did Volume 10. So we're going to come back and do Volume 11 of the History of Middle-Earth starting on February 8th. So that will be our first class on the War of the Jewels. Um, so, uh, and two weeks off between now and then, as I say. So, just to uh, let you know uh, that that is, uh, that is the plan for what is coming. It's going to be really fun, actually, to do the War of the Jewels after having done the Nature of Middle-Earth. Um, that's going to be, it's going to be really fascinating. Um, so, okay. Anyhow, that is, um, uh, that is what is coming up ahead. But let us charge forward. We were in the middle of Alice's um, party when she becomes queen. Um, uh, her uh, her her feast, sort of feast. Uh, she has issues. At the, there's so many issues at the feast. Um, things t- start to get rather chaotic uh, once Alice's feast begins. Um, we looked at the songs, the the the, the songs that were sung as she comes in last time. I'm not going to go over everything that happens at the table. We see the return of several, um, you know, several references back. I've talked before about how in her conversation with the Queens, we can see a lot of callbacks, a lot of, uh, it's like this whole chapter is reminding us of like so many of the things that have happened. Um, and, and by things, I don't just mean plot events or interactions with characters, but concepts and ideas that have been brought up, the whole cause and effect thing, the whole name and, uh, 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 you know, uh, word and, uh, you know, name and name and thing thing, uh, and uh, bunches of other uh, elements as well. Um, but, um, and as well as, of course, as, as many more examples of that kind of, um, breaking of social conventions as well, the taking people uh, literally at their words and things like that. Um, anyhow, okay. Uh, one of the passages, so there are just a handful of passages I want to talk about during the feast themselves, and then building up towards the transition back uh, to Alice's return to the real world. At last the Red Queen began. You've missed the soup and fish, she said, but on, put on the joint. 
So the joint of meat would be the third course. And the waiter set a leg of mutton before Alice, who looked at it rather anxiously, as she had never had to carve a joint before. "'You look a little shy. Let me introduce you to that leg of mutton,' said the Red Queen. "'Alice, mutton. Mutton, Alice.' The leg of mutton got up in the dish and made a little bow to Alice, and Alice returned the bow, not knowing whether to be frightened or amused. "'May I give you a slice?' she said, taking up the knife and fork and looking from one queen to the other. "'Certainly not,' the Red Queen said very decidedly. "'It isn't etiquette to cut anyone you've been introduced to. Remove the joint!' And the waiters carried it off and brought a large plum pudding in its place. Um... <laughs> Arthur is speculating about what kind of joint it is. Uh, yes, yes. Um, uh, it is the kind of joint that is a large hunk of meat. Um, <laughs> so there are certain similarities to another kind of joint. But anyway, um, all right. So there, I would identify two sort of core things that are like there are kind of two jokes that are contained in this passage, right? The first joke involves, well, the second one, Arthur, I was just talking about one of your comments, so I'll start with the second one, which is a pun, right? You see the core pun, which is the um, the joke, the second joke here in this passage, and I'm, I point to it in my subtitle. Um, it's when the Red Queen says, it isn't etiquette to cut anyone you've been introduced to. Um, in the 18th and 19th century, to cut someone um, uh, meant to like to 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 cut them off. Like when you um, uh, there was like there was the cut direct, there was the cut indirect. That is like if somebody comes up to you and says hi, and you just turn and walk away without addressing them, you have cut them in public. That is the cut direct. Um, yeah, to snub them, basically. Exactly, exactly. Um, uh, so. Th th that was a very common sort of social expression. Um, you know, it would have been the subject of gossip. Like, oh, did you see lady so-and-so cut this other person at, at, at the ball or whatever? Um, so that's the second joke, is that Alice is offering to cut the joint, right? Um, to carve it with the knife and fork, as you do. Um, but then the queen, uh, the queen is characterizing that as the other kind of cutting, right? She's been, it's, it's, it is an etiquette to cut anyone you've been introduced to. That is, that is impolite. Um, but of course, that brings us back to the first joke, which is a misinterpretation, not of Alice's words this time, but of her demeanor. Alice is looking at the joint rather anxiously, as she had never had to carve a joint before. Um, this was a, um, a place of honor, but a place of responsibility. In general, the meat was not brought to the table carved and ready to serve, and, and just ready to serve out. Um, the joint, the meat, uh, was uh, brought to the table whole, and someone at the table, um, often the person at the head of the table, would carve the meat and serve it to people. Um, uh, I... I always had the vague sense that this is how, uh, even when you have lots of servants preparing your food, it retains the, the sort of the direct sense of like you are receiving my hospitality, like I am I am serving you as host, right? Um, so the host, yeah, the eldest male the, had the honor and duty exactly, very very frequently. Um, uh, so that was uh, 
very, very, very common thing, almost universal thing um, in English culture, uh, again, it's in the 18th and 19th century. Um, so Alice <clears throat> has never had to carve a joint before. She doesn't, she doesn't know. How, so, I mean, of course, it's, there's a lot of pressure, right? Because everyone's watching you. Everyone's watching you. You've got to, you've got to know how to carve it well. Um, you can't make a mess of things. You can't, you know, have things flopping all over the table. And and you want to serve, you know, you want to carve and serve nice, elegant slices to your guests and things. So it's kind of a big deal. It's harder than it looks if you've never done it. Um, and uh, and to do it as a performance, right, with everybody looking at you, it's a big deal, right? That's it's definitely a big deal. Um, and this is why. Um, uh, and this is why she's anxious, right? She's feeling social anxiety because here she's at this huge table full of strangers, very weird strangers, um, and uh, most most of whom are not human. Or anyway, they're it's weird. Um, but anyway, she's 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 anxious because she's never had to carve a joint before. And the Red Queen, seeing her anxiety, says, "You look a little shy. Let me introduce you to that leg of mutton." So she takes her, her look of apprehension as she's looking apprehensively at the joint and she interprets it in a completely different social context as if the awkwardness that lay between Alice and the joint of meat were the, awkward, were the sort of awkwardness, social awkwardness that were between two unintroduced people at a party, right? And, and by the way... Um, this is particularly important if you remember that it was inappropriate to speak to somebody that you had not been introduced to. So it's not just a, like, you seem like you're kind of an introvert, let me break the ice between you and this other person. Like, if you were standing there next to a person to whom you had not been introduced, you, kind, you, you weren't supposed to talk to them, which is super awkward, right? So it's not just do you have the courage to break the ice? Like, you're not supposed to. So you just sort of stand there anxiously, whatever, hoping that situation somehow changes, right? So the Red Queen's action in seeing, if she were seeing Alice with a new person that she hadn't been introduced to yet, and Alice is anxious because she there's nothing she, could, she doesn't know what to do or say because she's not been introduced... For the Red Queen to step in and introduce Alice would be an act of kindness, right? She would be facilitating the furtherance of the relationship, or the beginning, honestly, of the relationship between Alice and this other person, right? Um, so, uh, but if you remember... Um, if you remember your Jane Austen at all, uh, you will recall this happening. This is why, at the beginning of Pride and Prejudice, um, Mrs. Uh, uh, Mrs. Bennet is in such despair that Mr. Bennet would not go. Like, a new gentleman coming to the neighborhood provides the social opportunity for the other gentleman in the neighborhood to visit him, and then they're introduced. Like, there are certain circumstances, but you can't just go up to somebody at a party and start talking to them. But if Mr. Bennett had gone and introduced himself, then they could be invited to parties and then there would be all kinds of ice-breaking possibilities. But if Mr. Bennett never meets him, then they would never be introduced, right? This anyway is her, is her fear. Um, um, yes, exactly, Meow. That is, and this, a lot of people miss 
exactly. I mean, everybody can see what a dork Mr. Collins is, but I think a lot of modern readers miss the visceral feeling of what Elizabeth is experiencing when she sees Mr. Collins go over to Mr. Darcy without an introduction and just start talking to him. I hear you are the nephew of my, you know, my, uh, my, my, my benefactress, Lady Catherine de Bourgh. He just starts up the conversation with him. And Mr. Darcy is embarrassed. Elizabeth is, is she's humiliated to see him do this. That's exactly the, uh, the thing that he's doing. Um, uh, anyway, so what the Red Queen does here would make sense, if not for the fact that the leg of mutton is in fact not an acquaintance, right? Um, Alice and the leg of mutton were supposed to have a different kind of relationship, right? And the Red Queen, by misinterpreting, deliberately misinterpreting perhaps, um, uh, Alice's... Uh, awkwardness, right? The shyness that she feels as she is anticipating publicly carving a joint for the first time. Um, the Red Queen totally shifts the grounds of their relationship, which is a surprise. Surprising, of course, that the, the mutton responds as like a gentleman introduced to uh, Alice would respond by bowing to her. Um, and she returns his bow with a curtsy, not knowing whether to be frightened or amused, right? This is weird. I mean, you know, if your Christmas turkey got up and bowed to you, it would be weird, right? That would be that would be unexpected. Amusing, but unexpected, and perhaps a little bit frightening. This seems to break the ice to the point where she, she then musters up the courage to do what she's supposed to do. May I give you a slice, right? I'm, so she's now preparing to do the thing and carve the joint, despite her anxiety about that. But that's now a social gaffe, right? Now she is threatening to cut a person she's been introduced to, which, with the pun, would be inappropriate, would be acting rudely towards that person. Without the pun, of course, it's even worse. I mean, she's literally taking a knife and fork to a person she's just been introduced. Their relationship has been completely shifted and she's not adapted to that, right? So the whole thinking about what this, how this fits in to the pattern, this is a different kind of step than we've seen before for a couple reasons. One, most of these kind of social reinterpretations have been word-based. Uh, right? You know, Alice, usually, using an idiom which is sort of socially coded in certain ways and other people not playing along with that, right? But that's not what happens here. Instead, it's just her attitude that is misconstrued. And through that misconstruction, the entire social situation is transformed by the Red Queen. Um, so it kind of, it's, again, it's not just about the words. It goes, it kind of takes that thing and, and moves beyond that now. Right to sort of show how um, it dramatizes both like sort of similarities and differences. Um, the pun, the second joke, the pun um, essentially maintains the parallel. Right, you could say like, okay, the relationship between Alice and the and the joint was that of like the host and the meal to be served. Um, the queen has now changed that into 
what two people at a party, like they're now peers, I guess, that have been introduced. Um, so you would think the first thought is that that's a that's a totally different relationship now, right? Um, the two things have nothing to do with each other. But the pun, the joke, like what do um, what do the joint? It's it's like the answer to a riddle, right? What does the joint that is laid on the table and the new acquaintance you meet at a party, what do they have in common, right? Answer, you can cut them both, right? Um, that's that's kind of the way that that pun functions. It, it The pun comes around and brings the two things back together again in this sort of mentally clashing way. It's a really complicated thing um, that is... Uh, um, that is that is happening through the combination of these two separate small jokes that are uh that are that are made here um yeah Tarlonial says it's impossible to cut someone you haven't been introduced to that's true that's true um and certainly Tarlonio Alice was finding it impossible to cut the joint before she was introduced to it <laughs> see how these jokes work and how these these kinds of puns in one sense I would say this is like a long version so here you go Arthur this is like a long one one conclusion that I would point to from this passage is it's a long sort of contemplation on what a pun is and how puns work why do puns Um, I had a professor once who was describing puns. It was a Shakespeare class. And Shakespeare, of course, puns all over the place. Um, and the way that my professor described it was there's a kind of like, mental energy that is released. Like the pun, when, when two meanings of one word collide there's this, there are like sparks that come off. This is why people respond to it. People always respond to puns. Um, they respond differently to puns, but even people who groan and yell at people who make puns are still responding. Even the fact that that makes people groan in certain ways, like, why is that exactly? Um, there's something about, his argument was that there's something about this uh, the the touching together of two different things. It's not always like, you know, the touching of two live wires together, but it's the, you know, a pun in one word brings two things into contact. It overlays two separate things. It forces your brain to combine two things that would not normally be combined. Your mind has been pushed along one trajectory by the literal context of the sentence, right? But at the point, at this, at the, at the word, at the crucial word, right, at the pun, although that momentum of thought continues, it is also then cut across by this other and totally unrelated thought, right, or perhaps totally unrelated, um, and that 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 collision, that mental jar, right, um, is 
what a pun is. It's how it works. It's what makes a pun what it is. Um, and it's just a question of whether or not you enjoy that experience or not, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, um, yeah, well... I'm not sure I agree, JJ, that whether a pun is funny depends on context, like social context. I'm not sure I agree with that exactly. There are certainly some places where deliberate puns are inappropriate. You know, like at a funeral or something, right? Uh, I mean, but that would just be when the particular energy that comes from the collision of meaning, right? When two meanings collide in one word, there's a, it's always a crash. There's always a crash. Um, some people enjoy the crash always. Uh, for some people, the crash is funny always. For some, it's funny once. For some, it's um, never funny. Some people just hate that. Uh, and I think it's more about how their minds work. I think it, to me, it seems to me more about, um, yeah. Uh, you know, just as there are some people who really enjoy physical comedy and some people who just can't understand physical comedy. Um, but, um, anyway, uh, Okay, you're saying not social context, but conversational context. Um, yeah. Uh, yes, in some ways. Um, in some ways. But, um, uh, yeah. Um, anyway, uh, getting distracted. But no, I don't think so. Because if you think about this, this is exactly the kind of thing, puns, that is, the nature of a pun. The way that in a pun, you've got two separate, unrelated meanings colliding, right? With, like, sparks and flames coming off them, right? Uh, when they collide. That's exactly the kind of thing that... that um, that's exactly the kind of thing that Lewis Carroll has been interested in so much all the way through. And if we think about it, this, I think, is one of the primary patterns that we have been seeing all along. I've not been talking about it in these terms. But all of those taking Alice literally things that we've been seeing since um, Alice in Wonderland on, you know, from like all those things in the Mad Tea Party and, um, and many, many times since then. Um, th there are a couple things happening there. There is, as I was just saying before, there is a play with social conventions not playing along. But there's also I'm going to take the word you made and I'm going to make it into a pun. I'm going to, I'm going to, I know you meant this thing, but I'm instead going to use a different definition, a different definition of that word. I'm going to use a, a different meaning of the word and respond to you as if you meant that other thing instead of the thing that you said. Um, 
it's really kind of um, what it does, not in every case, not in every situation that we've seen, but in many cases, what it does is it, um, it creates a pun. It takes a thing you said and turns it into a pun, um, which is a little bit different than making a pun on the word that you, like it's, when I say something and then Arthur makes a pun about it, right, makes a pun on it, um, he's not altered what I said. He's just saying something else, which is kind of coming alongside and creating that crashing meaning, right? What they're doing, like what the what the Red Queen does here, is treat her word cut. You know, it, well, she didn't even actually say the word cut. Um, she says, "May I give you a slice?" But she's taking her action, which is to cut the joint, um, and she is investing that word, that concept, with it. So she's treating it as if Alice had said, not meaning A, but meaning B. You see what I mean? Um, it's a, what is it? A proactive pun. A, um, it's acting as if the other person had made a pun, you know, that even though they, they didn't in any way. Um, but, um, anyway, um, <laughs> Fourth Thoughtless, you're right. The question, may I give you a slice? Um, there is, yeah, you're right. Um, who's she talking to? If she's talking to the queens, may I give you a slice means one thing. If she's talking to the mutton, to whom she's just been introduced, may I give you a slice <laughs> means an entirely different thing, doesn't it? I like that very much. Um, uh, I love that very much. Um, yeah. Um, well, that's very interesting, Jack Rabbit. So that quote you just get, gave was from C.S. Lewis uh, in Studies and Words. A pun is funny because it is unexpected. There is a semantic explosion because the two meanings rushed together from a great distance. One of them was not on our consciousness at, uh, at all till that moment. If it had been, there would, there would be no detonation. Interesting. It's almost exactly the... I am almost certain uh, that my old professor, who was talking, whom I was talking about before, had not read studies in words. I couldn't guarantee it, but I don't think he had. I don't think he was getting that from C.S. Lewis. Um, I think that's... Uh, parallel structure, but it is fascinatingly similar, isn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, yes. And Jocelyn, you're right, Jocelyn, of course, we were just, um, um, Arthur did it first, and I was picking up on it, the reference to uh, um, Mike from uh, uh, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. Uh, you know, funny once, funny always, categorizations of jokes. Um, and Jocelyn is, of course, recalling that um, we got a lot of, we had fun with this between Mike and Manny, um, the overlaying of meanings, and you have to get both meanings, right? Um, and perceive the, uh, you know, see that detonation, right? See that collision uh, in order to, in order for it to be funny. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Anyway, but as I said, I do think that this pattern, thinking about puns in this way and what the Red Queen, how the Red Queen turns this at the end, <clears throat> does help me, um, does help me to understand that whole trend a little bit better uh, in this book. All right. Our penultimate poem, the last verse that we get. This comes up, you'll remember, when Alice points out that all of the poetry that she has heard um, seems to be about fish in some way, which reminds the White Queen that she knows a riddle in verse about fish. And Alice is compelled to listen to it. First the fish must be caught. That is easy. A baby, I think, could have caught it. Next the fish must be bought. That is easy. A penny, I think, would have bought it. Now cook me the fish. That is easy, and will not take more than a minute. Let it lie in a dish. That is easy, because it, is, because it already is in it. Bring it here. Let me sup. It is easy to set such a dish on the table. Take the dish cover up. Ah, that is so hard that I fear I am unable. For it holds it like glue, holds the lid to the dish while it lies in the middle. Which is easiest to do? Undish cover the fish? or dish cover the riddle. I will not lie to you. I think this riddle, what is on this slide before me right now is the part of this, in, is the subsection of this entire book that I have understood least for my entire life. I don't get this. I don't get it at all. I don't get it... Um. I don't get the, um, I don't get it as a poem. I don't get it as a riddle. Um, I, the one thing I see and understand is the joke in the last line, right? The last line sets up a pun, as we've just been discussing, between dish cover and discover. Which is easiest, to undish cover the fish or dish cover the riddle? Discover the riddle. But dish cover is how it's written. Um, I can't think that's the only point. Um, is this a riddle that has an answer? Of course, my... Um, my suspicions are rather high on that point, as we've had a couple examples from one direction or the other of a riddle with no answer. Um, I, I don't understand. I don't get it. Is there more to it than the pun at the end? I mean, if it, what is it even asking us to do? Is this whole thing a riddle which has an answer like the the fish is something? Like, it's not actually just a fish in a dish. It's actually, you know, we're supposed to guess what this whole four stanzas is describing. A different thing? Or, um... Uh... Uh, or is it all just an elaborate setup 
for the pun in the last line? Um. Ah, David, I think you're right. Um, it's a raven in a writing desk. <laughs> yes, recalling the uh, riddle with no answer uh, in Alice in Wonderland. Um, uh, yeah, I don't... Um, I don't understand. Um, especially since the question at the end is not, what is it? Right? And often that's how riddles will end, right? Like if you have a, a first person riddle, which is not, not all of them are that way, but many of them are like, right. You know, I am like this and like this, I do this and I do that. What am I? Right. Which cues you like what the point of the riddle is, like what it is exactly that you're supposed to be, um, that you're supposed to be guessing. Um, but the question we're given at the end is nothing about the fish, has nothing to do with the fish, has nothing to do at, at all with anything that is said in the first two stanzas at least. Which is easiest to do, undish cover the fish or dish cover the riddle, is the question. Binary answer, which of those two is the answer? Which is easiest? To dish cover the riddle or to undish cover the fish? Um... We have discussed oysters and lobsters, uh, and it's possible to imagine that like a, some kind of shellfish could be an answer, um, but I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think it's there's a couple reasons why I don't think that that's true. The primary reason I don't think it's true is um, that. It sets it up like that. That is, like, as if we were to guess that kind of thing. It's an oyster or something, maybe. Um, but I think that last stanza pushes us in a completely different direction. Like, we're led to believe what we're supposed to do is exactly that. Be like, okay, what is the thing which is so easy, it's really easy to catch, really cheap to buy really easy to cook, um, you know, easy to set the dish on the table, but you can't take the lid off of the dish. Okay, you know, like, so what is that? And we could think of something, you know, again, like oysters or whatever else. Um, but, but that's not where the final, like the first three stanzas set us up as if that's what we're supposed to do. But the final stanza does not do that. Notice what, again, that last question points us to. Which is easiest to do? It makes a joke about dish cover and discover, right? So it makes a pun. But looking, look past the existence of the pun, right? The mere existence of the pun. Which is easiest to do? To take the fish, the dish off the off the fish, or to discover the riddle. In the end, it's like a meta riddle. The question the riddle itself is asking, literally, is how easy is it to discover this riddle? Um, 
Taking the dish cover up is so hard that I fear I'm unable. It holds it like glue, holds the lid to the dish while it lies in the middle. Is taking that lid that's held like glue, is that easier to do than to solve the riddle? Or is solving the riddle easier than that? Um, to discover the answer to the riddle. It goes beyond... It, like, skips... <laughs> I feel like, uh, you know, like Buttercup and the Princess Bride. We seem to have skipped that part, right? We seem to have skipped the part where we actually discover the riddle and have gone straight to trying to figure out whether discovering the riddle was harder than an element of the riddle. Exactly. Um... Which is why I f feel like the joke probably is that discovering the riddle is impossible. And thus the question itself is impossible to answer. If it's impossible to lift up the dish cover and it's impossible to discover the answer to the riddle, if it's as impossible as the, the raven in the writing desk, for instance, um... Yeah, and then, um, yes, uh, yes, Majid, you're, you're right. I was just thinking along the same directions. Um, there's an extra layer of joke. It's not just a pun that dish cover and discover are a pun, right? Dish cover and discover are not just like the pun which brings the two totally unrelated meanings together. They're not just unrelated meanings. They're opposite meanings. Right? To, to discover, to dish cover something is to cover it, to conceal it with a dish. To discover a thing is to reveal it, disclose it. Dish cover and discover mean opposite things. So when you take, when you make a pun on a word, where the two meanings that are punning together, that are colliding in that word, are in fact the opposites of each other, well, now you have a special situation, right? Um, so is that the point? But notice, the word is spelled with an H. Dish cover is supposed to sound like discover, and discover is what one does with a riddle. Did you discover the answer to the riddle? Um, that's what you do. So the pun is deliberate there. But he's, we can't just treat it as if it says, which is easiest to do, undish cover the fish or discover the riddle. Because it doesn't say that. Is it easier to take the dish cover off of the fish? Or is it easier to put the dish cover on the riddle? Wait, I think I know the answer to that one. It's way easier to dish cover the riddle. To conceal it? Is it easier to solve the riddle or to take the dish cover off that fish? Is a challenging question to answer. But is it easier to take that dish cover off the fish or not solve the riddle? Seems like an easier question. Um, yeah, so the colon in the middle of the last stanza, JJ, seems to me very important. Um, because 
it's that's the signal that what comes before the colon is the riddle. What comes after the colon is the question. Like you would like with the what am I kinds of riddle that I was describing about. Like right, you know, like I have like a really long nose and whatever. You know, like there's um sorry, I'm thinking of an Anglo Saxon riddle. Um uh so you know you like you and then like what am I at the end, right? Often there would be a colon uh, before to sort of signal, okay, I'm done giving you clues. Now you guess, right? So that colon signals that transition. Everything that lies before it is at least theoretically a clue to the riddle. Everything that comes after is the question. Um, yeah, uh, I th- I think and suspect that what is happening here is not that we are being given a riddle to discover, but that we are... It's not that we are being given a riddle to discover. It's that we're being invited to contemplate the nature of riddles again. Um, and puns at the same time. Um, yeah, there is a kind of reversal, like a kind of looking glass reversal, Jackrabbit. The riddle starts out discovered and we discover it. Um, it, yes, I mean, it is doing things backwards, right? To, instead of discovering a riddle, to discover it, right? Um, is in fact to do the opposite to it. Um, yeah. And the fact that it is asking you about the subject of the riddle and the riddle itself and asking you to judge between the two of them, right? Um, That's the primary thing that leads me to think the whole point of this is not, again, to give us a riddle that could be guessed. Um, but instead to challenge us to think about the nature of riddles and of words and meanings. Because, of course, riddles, if we're interested in the relationship between words and meanings, which this book emphatically is, whether it's names and things, whether it's like in Jabberwocky, um, you know, words and their denotations, um, this book has been very interested in the relationship between words and meanings. And if we're interested in that, the riddle is a fascinating ground, right? A fascinating uh, field of inquiry where all of the words that are said in a riddle are all designed to point to the one thing. The whole point of what you're doing in a riddle is you're trying to, what is the thing that all these words are pointing to? But the words are deliberately pointing to that thing in indirect and confusing ways, sounding like they're pointing. They they're designed to sound like they point to other things, but they actually are pointing to this other thing, right? So it's certainly no surprise um, uh, there's certainly no surprise uh, that he would be interested in riddles, because again, this is exactly the kind of thing um, 
that he is fascinated by throughout this story. And I do rather suspect that the, I mean, the point is that that question, it can't have any answer. There's no way it can have an answer. Which, of course, makes it a bad riddle. It's a riddle not... It's not just a riddle that fails to point to something or doesn't point to something well. But instead it points in this feedback loop. Right? Um, anyway... keep going. Okay. Um, the, Alice is now told um, that the by the Red Queen that shall to return thanks in a neat speech. Um, we have another social situation, right? Alice doesn't know what to do, and she's prompted like, this is your social duty, right? You ought to return thanks in a neat speech. We must support you, you know, the White Queen whispered, as Alice got up to do it very obediently, but a little frightened. Thank you very much, she whispered in reply, but I can do quite well without. That wouldn't be at all the thing, the, the Red Queen said very decidedly. So Alice tried to submit to it with a good grace. And they did push so, she said afterwards, when she was telling her sister the history of the feast. You would have thought they wanted to squeeze me flat. In fact, it was rather difficult for her to keep her place, to keep in her place, while she made her speech. The two queens pushed her so, one on each side, that they nearly lifted her up into the air. I rise to return thanks, Alice began, and she really did rise as she spoke, several inches. But she got hold of the edge of the table and managed to pull herself down again. Take care of yourself, screamed the White Queen, seizing Alice's hair with both her hands. Something's going to happen. Okay. Um, all right. Um, notice the things that are colliding with each other here in this speech. Wait, I don't mean speech. Not analysis speech, but in this situation. She has the obligation to return a speech, to return thanks in a speech. And they're going to support her. She thanks them, but says that she can do well without their support. But it has to be. They have to support her. Now, of course, it turns out that they don't mean they're going to support her morally or emotionally. They're going to support her physically. They're both of them pushing in on her from each side. Right? pushing so that you would have thought they wanted to squeeze me flat. Which creates so that their literal taking, their taking of the word support in a different sense from what it seems like they mean leads to another joke, right? She starts her speech of thanks with a very traditional formula. I rise to return thanks. That is, I rise to return thanks is to, you know, a, uh, a speech given by the 
you know, whoever's being honored at an, at an occasion. That is to that kind of speech what once upon a time is to a story, right? Um, okay. Um, yeah, okay. So she, I rise to return thanks. And they're, they're pushing at her both from both sides, such that she actually, in their thanks to their support, does actually rise up off the ground several inches. And she has to pull herself back down again. Um, uh, so David Roberts is talking about how he, how Lewis Carroll, in a later periodical, talked about an answer, talked about oysters in context of an answer to the riddle, the fish riddle. Um, but you see, David, I don't believe him. This is one of the things about being Lewis Carroll. If you're Lewis Carroll and you write a book like this, you will have to forgive me if I never quite believe anything you say ever again. <laughs> right? Um, that is um, one of the risks of writing a book like this is that you run the very serious risk that I am going to think you are having me on anytime you say anything ever again. Um, so, so I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, anyway. Okay, okay. Their initial sort of pun, right, the collision of meanings of the word support um, leads to the second one by supporting her in the way that was not how Alice expected. They gave a meaning to her word, rise, that she hadn't expected. When she said, I rise to return thanks, she only meant I rise to my feet, not I levitate up off the ground. Right, I rise up off the ground, which in fact she does, thanks to their support. Um, which of course, you'll notice, has the perverse effect, um, uh, has the perverse effect of undoing what the Red Queen said she ought to do. You ought to return thanks in a neat speech. Well, Alice is hardly going to be able to make a speech that anyone could call neat under these circumstances, when she's being pushed and squeezed and lifted off the ground. And then the White Queen, of course, says something's going to happen and something does happen, right? What Alice does, of course, in the end, is quite the opposite of a neat speech, when she takes the tablecloth and yanks it off the table and creates complete chaos of the, um, of the dinner party, right? Um... The way that he is, he, Carol, I mean, is crossing the line between words, words and meanings and actions, words and actions as well. Um, it's not just through their talk or their comprehension that they are 
misconstruing deliberately or not the intention, like the actual, the, what she meant by her words. Um, there is their own actions are creating those separate meanings. Um, so it's another way in which context changes words and meanings uh, in this in this new kind of way. All right. Um, we come to the transition. And as for you, she went on, turning fiercely upon the Red Queen, whom she considered as the cause of all the mischief, but the Queen was no longer at her side. She had suddenly dwindled down to the size of a little doll, and was now on the table, merrily running round and round after her own shawl, which was trailing behind her. At any other time, Alice would have felt surprised at this, but she was far too much excited to be surprised at anything now. As for you, she repeated, catching hold of the little creature in the very act of jumping over a bottle which had just lighted upon the table, I'll shake you into a kitten. That I will. Um, or, oh, I see. Uh, um, David is saying that the apparent answer of oysters wasn't necessarily due to Carol. It was an anonymous correspondent um, uh, to Carol. Anyway, yeah, it's um, it's complicated. Um, so it just adds to me, David, a, a level of uncertainty. Uh, my only question becomes, was he messing, was he just messing with his correspondent or was he messing with everybody? <laughs> right. Um, or both probably. Um, but anyway, okay. Um, so the red queen Alice expresses her determination. So she's... Things are changing, transforming around her. The, her environment has now become almost completely unstable. Um, totally unpredictable things are happening. If... Um, I've told... I've said before that I am, I, I am resistant to the word nonsense being applied to freely to what happens in Lewis Carroll's books. Um, as most of the time, it isn't nonsense but rather this kind of deliberate shift in juxtaposition and questioning of the relationship between word and meaning and all of that kind of thing. Uh, to question the relationship between word and meaning is not merely to do nonsense, not just to utter random noises and, you know, not that don't have any connection with anything. But here at the end of the party, the party dissolves into something that is quite close to nonsense. Right as th things start changing randomly around her, th one thing transforms into another with no obvious cause and effect at all. Right, all of these things are um, are dissolving. Right. Um, she is not surprised. At other times, she would have felt surprised, but here she's too excited to be surprised at anything, and she grabs the Red Queen. And she reasserts order by bringing about a final transformation. I will shake you into a kitten. I'm going to transform through my action. I'm going to transform you, the Red Queen, into a kitten. And that is the segue, is the transition through two very short chapters, Shaking and Waking, back to Alice's world. Now, um, so 
she seems to make that decision. Right, I'm going to shake you into a kitten. I'm going to transform you into a kitten. Um, let's go on and then come back and think about what that means. Um, Your Red Majesty shouldn't purr so loud, Alice said, rubbing her eyes and addressing the kitten respectfully, yet with some severity. You woke me out of, oh, such a nice dream. And you've been along with me, Kitty, all through looking, all through the looking-glass world. Did you know it, dear? It is a very inconvenient habit of kittens, Alice had once made the remark, that whatever you say to them, they always purr. If they would only purr for yes and mew for no or any rule of that sort, she had said, so that one could keep up a conversation. But how can you talk with a person if they always say the same thing? On this occasion, the kitten only purred and it was impossible to guess whether it meant yes or no. Whew. Okay, so many things happening here. Um, first of all, notice that in the context of her interaction with her kitten, we saw her conversing with her kittens back in chapter one. And she was speaking as if she was having a conversation. She was maintaining both halves of the conversation between herself and her kittens, um, kind of like she's pretending to be all the kings and queens at once, right? Um, so wait, being all the, was Alice being all the kings and queens at once? That has chess relevance and therefore looking glass world relevance too. Um, she's rubbing her eyes and says that she woke up out of a dream. But did she? Or was it her own imagination? Remember, let's pretend, and how important let's pretend is to Alice. Did she dream all this, or did she pretend it? Was it like, you know, we see, we're reminded again, um, more explicitly here, of her active frustration, that she can't have an independent conversation with her kittens. Notice she does not seem to question whether or not the cats actually have answers her questions. The only question, the only difficulty is with their communicating it. Um, right? It's not whether whether the cat is saying yes or no, it's whether she can tell whether the cat is saying yes or no in response to her question. So that the cat comprehends her and has an answer seems to Alice obvious. Um, the problem is the pointing to the meaning. Right? How how can you figure out what the meaning is when all they do is purr, right? Which, of course, brings us back to most everything that we've seen in the book so far. All of the different contemplations about comprehension and meaning, the relationship between names and things and... Um, you know, puns and the misprision of meaning and all of these other things, right, that we've been talking about, um, has all of that been a way in which Alice herself has been kind of working through this question? As she has peopled Looking Glass World with creatures of her own imagination, many of which are her and many of which are her kittens, um, if 
does she have another layer of pretending? It's not just like with her sister, where her sister pretends to be one person and Alice pretends to be all the rest, right? But if she is pretending with her kittens, is she pretending that she is multiple people and pretending that her kittens are each multiple people as well? Um, I don't know. Alice's uh, imagination, I think, is better than mine. Um, but um, anyhow, okay. Uh, yes, Fourth Dauntless, you're probably right. Fourth Dauntless says, it occurs to me that Kitty is probably not the cat's name. It's likely just what Alice calls it. So you're saying it's not the name of the cat, it's what the cat is called, right? Do you think, Fourth Dauntless, that, um, that the cat's name is called something else, perhaps, and that the cat actually is a fourth thing? I think that's possible. What is the cat? And what is the cat called? Of course, that's indeed what, the, what Alice is going to go on to ask, right? What did Dinah turn into? What is Dinah? She prattled on as she settled comfortably down with one elbow on the rug and her chin in her hand to watch the kittens. Tell me, Dinah, did you turn to Humpty Dumpty? I think you did. However, you'd better not mention it to your friends just yet, for I'm not sure. By the way, Kitty, if only you'd been really with me in my dream, there was one thing you would have enjoyed. I had such a quantity of poetry said to me, all about fishes. Tomorrow morning, you shall have a real treat. All the time you're eating your breakfast, I'll repeat the walrus and the carpenter to you, and then you can make believe it's oysters, dear. So first of all, um, that is a horrible interpretation of the walrus, and the, a horrible application of the walrus and the carpenter. Um, if uh, I can't help but feel that if you read the walrus and the carpenter story and come out with it thinking that... It makes you think about eating oysters. Maybe, maybe you've been a little insensitive <laughs> to that poem. I don't know. Um, um, yeah, the moral of the poem is oysters are yummy, apparently. Yes, that seems to be what Alice has taken from it. Or is it what Alice would imagine that the kitty would take from it? Right? It's she, Alice, might perhaps see some additional meanings in that poem, but the kitty, who would presumably be very pro-oyster consumption, um, and whose sympathy would be all with a walrus and the carpenter, um, would, uh, would take it that way, right? Um, it's all about pretending, pretending, let's pretend, right? which means I'm going to imaginatively put myself in a different place, right? So if she's populating all of her, like, her imaginings with not only her own imaginings, but her imaginings of the kitten's imaginings, um, uh, yeah, um, it gets complicated. It gets complicated. So anyway... This question of who they are and Dinah being Humpty Dumpty, I don't even know where to start with that. Like, is it her authoritative stance? Dinah is the master. Dinah is the mom kit, mom kitten, right? The, the mom cat who was the cat that um, 
that Alice kept inappropriately referring to when she was conversing with mice, for instance, uh, back in Alice in Wonderland. Um, but yeah, I love the play uh, for Thalys because you're completely right about the name and what it's called and all that kind of thing. Um, anyway. The transition back to the real world is still officially a, a waking from a dream. I mean, she does rub her eyes and she herself says that it's a dream. And yet... There's this unresolved emphasis on let's pretend from the beginning, right? And the way in which her pretending about words and meanings and the intent, you know, the intended, uh, her taking, remember what she was doing to the cat at the beginning where she was take, she was looking what the cat was doing and she was reading meaning into, she was reading intention into that. Isn't that very like what the, Red Queen was doing to Alice there at the dinner table with the joint, right? Um, the link, in other words, Alice in Wonderland provides us almost nothing in terms of connection between real world and dream world, right? The real world is the merest frame at the beginning and end. Um, the merest frame and the point of the story, the point of the Wonderland story, is that she has undergone this transition down the rabbit hole and is now in a strange place which operates by different rules which she's trying to figure out, which has a complicated relationship to the rules of the real world. But there's the clear transition threshold that she crosses in order to enter it when she falls asleep, um, and then goes down the rabbit hole. And then there's the transition out of it at the end when she clearly wakes up and just returns to the regular world. And what's happening in the regular world bears no clear connection to what was happening in the looking glass world. Um, and um, okay. We do then get at the end of Alice in Wonderland later reflections, right, on how it impacted her when she grew up and whatnot. But here, the line between the real world and looking glass world is much finer. And it's less clear to me that the looking glass world is a dream at all. Like, again, I'm being asked to believe that it's a dream and I'm willing to do that. But the cues I'm getting are ambivalent and weird. Um, we don't get the same falling asleep or the same waking up thing. We talked about that at the beginning. There's no moment when she falls asleep. She just decides she's going to go through the looking glass, and so she does. Is this really happening? Is it not really happening? Was there a moment that she fell asleep? In which case, we, we didn't get any hint as to when it was. She's having the conversation, and then she's like, and now I'm going to go through looking glass, go into looking glass house, right? Um, so it seems to be not a dream at all, but a pretending, a 
long contemplation of um, these, you know, of, of a, a long pretending, a long contemplation of these questions like how to communicate with her kitten, her, her, um, her difficulty in communicating with her kittens and the relationship between her and her kittens in the context of their not communicating with each other, right? And that all of these things kind of work themselves out in her rather sophisticated imagination, uh, if that's what it is. But of course, she brings up the dream explicitly. Now, Kitty, let's consider who it was that dreamed it all. This is a serious question, my dear, and you should not go on licking your paw like that, as if Dinah hadn't washed you this morning. You see, Kitty, it must have been either me or the Red King. He was part of my dream, of course, but then I was a part of his dream, too. Was it the Red King, Kitty? You were his wife, my dear, so you ought to know. Oh, Kitty, do help to settle it. I'm sure your paw can wait. But the provoking kitten only began on the other paw and pretended it hadn't heard the question. Which do you think it was? Okay, let's wait on the last line. Um, whose dream was it? Was it her dream or the Red King's dreams? Now, in many ways, this is an odd question. And of course, it's the question which is the title of the last chapter, which dreamed it. You would think that waking up would have put paid to that question one way or the other, right? The question, after all, was whether or not Alice was real. <coughs> Tweedledum and Tweedledee were asserting that she was just a sort of thing in the Red King's dream. Um, and taunting her with the fact that she was not real. And she was a little bit upset at the idea that she might not be real and might, or might, and might just be a figure in the Red King's dream. And she was having a certain amount of anxiety about her own reality. Now she's awake, talking to the kitten, asking the kitten to arbitrate on this question. Am I real or am I not real? Am I a real girl who was dreaming of the Red King? Or am I just a thing in the dream of the Red King? Am I not real at all? Are we still currently living? in a dream that is being had by the Red King. Which is very, uh, you know, I don't know, it's very Matrix, actually. But um, is that um, it seems her anxiety to settle this seems peculiar, right? But her anxiety is pointing to, again, her continued frustrations as she continues to invest meaning, right? The provoking kitten only began on the other paw and pretended it hadn't heard the question. Right. Um, that is a particular construction that she is placing on the behavior of the kitten that she is observing. Right. Um, it not only obviously heard the question, it presumably knows the answer. Um, but provokingly, it won't play along. It won't. Uh, it won't go along with her. As I say, the question, if you've woken up from your dream and your question is still, am I only a part of someone else's dream? Um, it, 
Is she questioning the nature of reality? The relationship between dream and reality? I mean, I guess in some ways that's sort of like the ultimate cause and effect question that she's bringing in at the end. Um, Lewis Carroll opens the question to the reader at the end, right? The final line is the final breaking of the fourth wall, right? Addressing the reader directly, which do you think it was? Asking the re so putting the reader in the position of the kitten. You're a substitute kitten here. Um, asking the reader to arbitrate. But that's a more interesting question. Because from within the framework of the book, from Alice's framework, the answer would seem to be obvious. I mean, if she's not real, how would she know? Right? Um... Sorry, I mentioned the Matrix, and I just got thinking about the Matrix again. Um, but um, anyway, uh, I'm, I'm, this is me resisting making a bunch of parallels with the Matrix, which I'm not going to do. Not doing it. I'm not. I like my mind is spinning off on all these Matrix parallels that I'm not going to make. Okay, okay. Um, but when we take the question, which dreamed it? outside the frame of the book so that we're now looking in at the book it becomes a completely different question, doesn't it? Um, because of course from Alice's perspective which is real and which is a figment me or the Red King in my, in, in my dream right? seems an obvious question but from our perspective Alice and the Red King are both just characters in this book the Red King is a character from within a frame inside this book, and Alice from without the frame within that book, but it's a different question for us, right? Um, right, from our perspective, Lewis Carroll dreamed it. Yes. Yes. By asking us, he not only shifts the frame by asking us, um, he also shifts the responsibility Jack Rabbit, coming back to exactly your point from our perspective, Lewis Carroll dreamed it. But he's leaving it up to us to decide which we thought dreamed it. Um, therefore giving us agency. Just as thinking about Alice's let's pretend agency. Right? She's very much about taking agency. Um, and of course, that's another thing that we saw people doing all the way through, right? When they're take, when they're misconstruing her words, they are taking the agency. They're they're, you know, every time somebody takes Alice's words at face value and twists them in a different way, they're doing the let's pretend. Let's pretend you meant this, right? Um, and he's inviting us to do this now with the whole book. Which do we think it was? Um, through the looking glass reading through the looking glass carefully is one of the most meta literary experiences <laughs> that I know of 
um, I don't know anybody. I can't think of any book which is more meta than this one is. Um, there are others that play with that fourth wall more directly. Um, but, yeah. Um, and in that context, let's, uh, let's look at the final poem. A boat beneath a sunny sky, lingering onward dreamily in an evening of July. Let's not start with that first stanza. Children three that nestle near, eager eye and willing ear, pleased a simple tale to hear. Long has paled that sunny sky, echoes fade and memories die, autumn frosts have slain July. Let's consider stanza two and three, and let's think about the sound patterns that we get in stanzas two and three. What's our rhythm? What's our meter here? Children three that nestle near, eager eye and willing ear, pleased a simple tale to hear. Does seem like four beats. I think it's iambic. It's complicated. It's complicated. There are definitely four stressed syllables. Children, three that nestle near, eager eye and willing ear, pleased a simple tale to hear. Four, four, four. No question. Right? Now. But what's the pattern? Is it iambic or trochaic? Iambic, remember, is unstressed, stressed. Trochaic is stressed, unstressed. And of course, the problem with those two meter types, if you just look at the middle of the lines, how can you tell? In the middle of the lines, right, if you just take like the central syllables, it's just both of them are alternating stress, unstressed, stressed, unstressed, right? So how can you tell? Well, you look at the beginning and the end. The beginning and the end will tell you. If it's iambic, it begins with an unstressed syllable. If it's uh, trochaic, sorry, it, it begins with an unstressed syllable. If it's iambic, it ends with a stress. If it's trochaic, it begins with a stress and ends with unstressed. What does this do? Children three that nestle near. How many syllables? Children three that nestle near. Seven. Uh oh. That's an odd number of syllables. Maybe that's a variation. Eager eye and willing ear. Uh oh. Pleased a simple tale to hear. Oh dear. Each line is seven syllables. That's not. And the pattern? It begins and ends with a stress. All three lines. Children three that nestle near. Eager eye and willing ear. Pleased a simple tale to hear. So is it iambic or is it trochaic? You can't even really tell. Long has paled the sunny sky. Long has paled that sunny sky. Echoes fade and memories die. Autumn frosts have slain July. It is why it sounds so weird. Um, 
it's this is also why by the way notice how hard the line breaks are at the end of these lines it's almost impossible to enjam these lines you can't do it because it's two stress syllables in a row you can't be like long as paled that sunny sky echoes fade and memories die autumn frost to the slain july like it does not cannot flow together they're very discreet sayings long has paled that sunny sky echoes fade and memories die autumn frosts have slain july because again if you have an even number of syllables it can flow one line into the next um it um can't do that so anti-enjambment confusing meter i have a vote by the way as to which meter it is fundamentally iambic or trochaic when in doubt look at the two syllable words children nestle eager willing simple sunny Echoes, memories, autumn. All of them are trochaic, stress unstressed. Every single two syllable word used in those two stanzas follows the stressed unstressed pattern. Therefore, um, I, uh, it fundamentally has a trochaic feel to me. But I think it's sort of ambivalence is important. Children three that nestle near. Um, yes, and Jackrabbit, you are correct. The meter that he's using here is the same one that the witches in Macbeth use. Yes. Um, by the pricking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes. Yes, exactly the same. Exactly the same. Um, okay. Um, anyway. Generally trochaic feel, I think, but ambivalent lines. Heavy. Three lines. So each line is seven syllables. Each stanza is three lines. The fact that both of those are odd numbers is weird. I mean, it's not like illegal or something, but it's strange. Both of those things are strange. Normally, you have an even number of syllables. Normally, you have an even number of lines. Uh, most commonly, you have an even number of lines in a stanza. Um, we don't have either one of those things. Seven and three. And single syllable rhyme all the way through. Right? Um, still she haunts me, phantom-wise, Alice moving under skies, never seen by waking eyes. Same sound pattern there, right? Now back to the first stanza that I skipped. A boat beneath a sunny sky, lingering onward dreamily, in an evening of July. Two variations in this stanza from the other three that we can see on this page. Right. What do you notice that's different about... First, the rhyme, obviously. Right? Um, 
I do not think that the lack of rhyme between Sky, July, and Dreamily is just a an artifact of modern American pronunciation. I think that even in the middle of the 19th century, that would have been at best a slant rhyme. One of those words that rhymes to the eye much more than it does to the ear. Um, and yes, Sarah, that's exactly it. The first stanza has, the first line, rather, of the first stanza has eight syllables. A boat beneath a sunny sky. And is perfectly iambic. Iambic tetrameter. A boat beneath a sunny sky, lingering onward dreamily in an evening of July. We get into... Here's the other thing with dreamily. Can you think of another example of when Lewis Carroll did that? That kind of a really stretched slant rhyme? It's very uncommon in his poetry. Very uncommon. Um... Yes, you do have to say lingering as a two-syllable word. Um, also, you have to say memories as a two-syllable word in stanza three as well. Um, but I don't think those are a very big stretch, either one of them. Um, yeah, I know, Arthur, I don't think lingering is three syllables. Um, I mean, it could be. It could be. I don't think it is. Um but in any case, you don't do this. <laughs> you don't do this. You don't make the variations in stanza one. The effect of putting the variations in stanza one is that it messes up our ears as we're trying to figure out what the pattern is from which you're deviating. And by the time we figure it out, we've forgotten what happened in stanza one. So that's weird. Yeah, Sarah, you're right. It's offering up the first line in typical iambic and then changing the rules. Yes. Yes. It's exactly what it does. Um, Keep looking at patterns. Children yet the tale to hear, eager eye and willing ear, lovingly shall nestle near. In a wonderland they lie. In in a wonderland they lie. Still seven. In a wonderland they lie, dreaming as the days go by, dreaming as the summers die. Ever drifting down the stream, lingering in the golden gleam. Life, what is it but a dream? I think lingering is two syllables. I really do. Um, I do. Anyway, okay. He sticks with sevens all the way through to the end. Same pattern. And also notice he doesn't mess with the rhymes ever again here. Um,
Wait a second. Majid, I'm hang on, you're blowing my mind here. It's an acrostic. A L I C E that is suggestive. First line first words of the line of the of the lines. So what is it? Alice plea. Almost please, but there's no E after that. Alice plea P L E A S A N C E L Seems to be losing it towards the end. Pleasance? Alice Pleasance Liddell. Right. Okay, Pleasance. Pleasance Liddell. Okay. Which is her name. Right. Okay, got it. Got it. It was the D's and L's at the end. Okay. Alice Liddell. Right. Got it. Okay, so he's made the last sentence, the, the, the poem into an acrostic of her name. Good grief. As if as if Lewis Carroll couldn't get more clever. But anyway, all right. All right. Um, okay. Okay. Let's look at the... Let's look at the substance. A boat beneath a sunny sky... Lingering onward dreamily in an evening of July. Well, the word dreamily certainly stands out, right? Big old spotlight on the word dreamily. Um, and I think I can see why. Remember that we started? Yes, exactly. Fourth Dallas. It's a callback to the opening poem when he was rowing. Right. Um, the, when, when they were rowing in the boat together. Children three that nestle near, eager eye and willing ear, pleased a simple tale to hear. Remember the three girls that he was out boating with um, in the prologue poem to Alice in Wonderland? Long has paled that sunny sky, echoes fade and memories die. Autumn frosts have slain July. Summer is dead. July is dead. The evening, the, the July evening, um, the July evening in which we boated together has been slain by the autumn frosts. Time has come, right? Time has moved from summer into autumn towards, but not quite yet, to winter. So we have approaching death. Remember how much death we got in the opening poem of this story? Um, quite a bit. And yes, Dolor Stroke, I agree. I really like lingering onward, too. Um, lingering onward. Uh, Dolor Stroke says linger means not to move, but here it's being done forwards. You're lingering onward, right? You're, um, and of course, like in a boat, you can do that, right? You're lingering in the boat, but the boat is moving. So you have the um, um, the inexorable movement of the boat. Even if you linger, even if you do nothing, it 
You might linger, but the boat will not. It will drift on um, inexorably. And that, at first, is a charming little uh, restful, peaceful image in an evening of July. But, of course, in stanza three, he comes back to that in a sense, right? Um, it has lingered onward. The, 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 the river, right, down which the boat was drifting um, is now the river of time, which is moving the seasons onward from July into autumn and onward towards the fatal winter. Um, Still she haunts me, phantom-wise, Alice moving under skies, never seen by waking eyes. Still she haunts me. So he is haunted by Alice. So the picture of the children three, eager eye and willing ear, pleased a simple tale to hear. Notice how that's all in dashes, right? That image, that memory of what was in that boat, right, in the evening of July, those children three. He's now, if we track the syntax, all the, the whole three first stanzas are one sentence, right? A boat with the children in it, long has paled that sunny sky. Um, so the, what the sentence is about, um, is the paling of the sun, of the sunny sky, the fading and dying of the memories, the slaying of July by autumn, like stanza three is the action of that, of that first sentence, right? You've got the, the lingering dreamy memory, right? At first, and then you've got the reality of the movement of time in stanza three. But now you have the past still haunting him. Still she haunts me. Alice haunting him. Alice moving under skies, never seen by waking eyes. Period. One sentence in one stanza there. Alice is moving under the skies, never seen by waking eyes. So we have this ghost of Alice haunting him phantom-wise. The movement of Alice, we've had the boat lingering onward dreamily. We had time moving forward inexorably. And now we have Alice moving Never seen by waking eyes, only by dreaming eyes? Alice is never seen by waking eyes. In what sense is Alice a phantom? Alice is a phantom. In this, what is Alice? Which dreamed it? Right? Because, of course, one possible answer to that final question, which do you think it was? Which the question itself almost points to is, wait, I, I, I dreamed it, actually. Alice isn't real. I was pretending as I was reading the book. I was picturing Alice. I was imagining Alice the whole time. She wasn't seen by my waking eyes. I wasn't exactly dreaming either, but I was pretending. 
So Alice is moving under the skies, haunting him still, apparently. Never seen by waking eyes. Children yet the tale to hear, eager eye and willing ear, lovingly shall nestle near. So now you've got the children, not the original children who were in the boat that they were that he was telling stories in, but now he's thinking about the children who are listening to the stories about Alice being read. Eager eye and willing ear with that direct parallel, eager eye and willing ear direct quotation, right? Pleased a simple tale to hear, lovingly shall nestle near. So we have the child nestling down in your lap, right? Listening to the book that you are reading. Which dreamed it? Was it you? Was it Carol? Was it the Red King? Was it Alice? Was it Lewis Carroll? Was it you who are reading the book? Is it the child who's listening to the book? In a wonderland they lie, dreaming as the days go by, dreaming as the summers die. Oh, oh, okay, wait, wait. Who's they? The children? The children listening to the book that you're reading are lying in a wonderland, lingering onward like the boat, maybe? Dreaming, which was connected with the boat before. Dreaming as the days go by. Dreaming as the summers die. He's now comparing the question, which dreamed it, right? He's now comparing the experience Experience of the children listening to the story? They are in a wonderland. Imaginatively, as they're listening to your story, they're there. They're imagining themselves there, like Alice imagines herself into Looking Glass Land. Right? So now he's asking us to consider the experience the children are having, having when we're reading the story to them. And is he also kind of talking about childhood as a whole? Dreaming as the days go by, dreaming as the summers die. So that waking up becomes, what, growing up? Or is waking up death? Remember, we had the sleeping death thing going on in the poem at the prologue of this book. Very interested in death. Um, okay. Dreaming as the summers die. So again, so what is waking? Are they then a figment in somebody else's dream? In Lewis Carroll's dream? Are they a figment in their own dream? Which dreamed it? Ever drifting down the stream, lingering in the golden gleam. Back to the first image of the boat. Drifting down the stream, lingering onward. Lingering, we're returned to lingering, in the golden gleam of the sun in July. This constant July of childhood. Remember the irony that Alice started on a snowy day? But whatever. Life, what is it but a dream? And now he pulls the final joke. What is the joke of this poem? We get the explanation for all of the, not all of them, but many of the oddities of this poem. Yeah, it's all a play on row, row, row your boat, which is in threes. Right? Row, row, row your boat um, down the stream. Um, so everything's in threes. Life, what is it but a dream? He starts 
so rowing the boat gently down the stream, which nursery rhyme ends life. What is it? But a dream, you know, um, merrily, 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 merrily life is but a dream is the assertion at the end of that poem. Right. And you know where you might read row, row, row your boat, which tells you that rowing in a boat down a stream, um, is like a metaphor of life, which is but a dream. You might read that in a nursery rhyme book, right after you read the one about Tweedledum and Tweedledee, and before you read the one about Humpty Dumpty. And he's doing with our lives here what Alice was doing with Humpty Dumpty's lives in Tweedledum and Tweedledee inside Looking Glass Land. He's doing it with his own life and doing it with ours. What is it but a dream? And that, I think, is why Dream a Lie doesn't rhyme in the first stanza, by the way. Man. With a final meta explosion, right, in this final poem. Um, Man. Unbelievable. This is, through the looking glass, is one of the most intense intensely complicated ridiculously multivalent books I know of um, I'm not going to use a superlative because it's always hard to assert superlatives like that but man I know very few things that are um, I know very few things that are in its weight class <laughs> when it comes to um multivalence and meta contemplations unbelievable what carol does in this po- in this poem in this book you know how he's taken this poem and like transformed the entire set of books that we just read unbelievable um uh yeah yeah um oh man Jack Rabbit Monster says it's the same meter and rhyme scheme as the DS Irae. Right. So if you want a final mind-blowing experience, Jack Rabbit, read this poem to that tune. <laughs> Holy cow. <laughs> yeah. And Sonalisha, you're right. We didn't even talk about the math stuff. There are math jokes too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, anyway. Yikes. Okay. Well, obviously... We hardly solved all the problems or resolved all the things, but, um, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, it is, um, it is, there is so much, there is so much, uh, it is an incredibly rewarding. And again, this, it really raises the question for me, which I was going to talk about for a while, but we don't have time. So I'll just sort of leave with a question, especially thinking all these meta things that we get at the end who's the audience of this book, right? Think about how at the end, the book is looking squarely in the eyes, both of the children who are listening and of the adult who is reading, right? And how it's inviting you even to think about the connection between you and the child. Um, when you're reading a book to a child, is does the child have, what is the picture in the child's head and how is that related to the picture in your head? Are you actually connecting? You know, the connection between words and meanings and... Yikes. 
lots and lots. This book is, it, it is, meow, it is a trip. This book is, a, is a, this whole set of books is a trip. Um, Lewis Carroll is intense and amazing. All right. Um, I'm going to let you go, though. Thank you for joining me for this long, um, fun discussion of Alice's Adventures. Uh, we'll see you in three weeks on the 8th of February uh, for session one of something completely different, of War of the Jewels, as we return to the history of Middle-earth. Um, thanks very much, guys. See you guys again soon. Bye now.